Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Dua Lipa at Your Service, my podcast series in which I sit down with some of the world's most creative minds for conversations that leave my head spinning for days after. And they don't come much more creative than my very special guest this week, the actor, director, producer, writer, and musician, Riz Ahmed. Riz appeared to emerge fully formed with his debut in 2006's The Road to Guantanamo. Since then, he's barely left our screens, taking on memorable roles in projects like Nightcrawler, Star Wars Rogue One, The Night of, Venom, Mogul Mowgli, and Encounter. In 2021, Riz became the first Muslim to be nominated by the Academy Awards for Best Actor in a Leading Role for his portrayal of Reuben Stone in The Sound of Metal. Hey, Hector, what's going on, man? It's Reuben. I'd say it's good to hear your voice, but I can't hear a fucking word you're saying right now, so this is completely pointless. Lou wanted me to call you because I had a cigarette. Uh, you know, not great, not ideal, but considering the circumstances, which are pretty fucked up, uh, you know, understandable. I'd say understandable for everyone apart from Lou, it seems. The list of awards and accolades he's won is extensive, but highlights include two Golden Globes, two BAFTAs, two Screen Actors Guild Awards, and a Primetime Emmy Award. And as of last month, he's also added an Oscar to his trophy cabinet for his short film, The Long Goodbye, which gives a devastating perspective on the dark shadow of Brexit on minority communities in Britain. I've admired Riz for years, not just as an actor and musician, but also for his impressive and fearless campaigning. He's not afraid to challenge the film industry for its lazy and at times destructive portrayal of Muslim characters, asking about his own success. If I'm the exception to the rule, what must the rule be about people like me? His activism draws on his own personal experience of the film industry and also masterfully utilizes the sometimes under-celebrated tool of the activist, Data. Please join me in welcoming my very special guest, Riz Ahmed. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me on. It's good to meet you. Thank you so much for doing this. I've been very, very excited. It's so nice to meet you too. Congratulations on your Oscar win. Oh, thank you for that. Massive. I appreciate it. That's really yeah, exciting. Yeah, so surreal. We can talk about it. Yeah, I definitely want to get into that. I love the picture that you posted of your little suitcase going through like baggage claim and your Oscar <laughs> showing up on the x-ray. Yeah, it's like finally they found something. <laughs> After all these years, it's like, all right, you got me, finally. Riz. You're a stage actor, you're a filmmaker, you're a writer, producer, director, musician, rapper, and you're an activist. I mean, I guess where I want to begin is um, right at the beginning, I want to talk a little bit about your life at home in Wembley, northwest London. Yep. You grew up in uh, a South Asian family with parents who emigrated from Pakistan in the 1970s. And this has been quite a recurring theme with a lot of my guests. And I'm, I'm really interested mm. in families that have, I guess, what you call a hyphenated identity coming from one myself. Mm. What can you tell me about life in the Ahmed household? Well, first of all, I want to say you're my new hype man. That was a great <laughs> intro. Anytime Love you need that. me, I'll be there. 
Now, anytime I'm introduced on stage, I want exactly that soundbite from this podcast, just playing out on speakers. <laughs> um, yeah, listen, I appreciate you going deep straight away from the jump. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's a recurring theme, I'm sure, for a lot of your guests. Because I don't know if you feel this way, but people who feel like outsiders, people who feel like they are hybrid in some way, that they're both insiders and outsiders... I think they are forced to be creative in one way or another, right. you know? And sometimes that comes out as music, sometimes that comes out as film, sometimes it comes out as visual art. But the reason you're creating is you're trying to kind of create a coherent sense of identity for yourself. And I actually feel like it's so ironic that a lot of the time immigrant families are thought of as being, you know, the parents are, and sometimes it's true, you know, they want their kids to go into stable professions and they're like, don't go into the creative industries. You know, don't mm. do something unreliable. But the great irony is that a lot of us from immigrant backgrounds, the one thing we have when we come to these new countries is culture. You know, right. we have our songs, we have our stories, we have our music, we have our food, mm. we have our fashion. Culture is something you can take with you even if you don't have the shirt on your back. And so I feel like there's something inherently creative about people who come here with nothing but their culture. It's inevitable in a way that they will continue making culture and continue trying to construct and create their identity. So, and yeah, for me, I mean, it was no different. I um, guess how it was for you in that it's, you're kind of code switching between different versions of yourself. You speak mm. in one language at home. At home, something different yeah, in school. different language at, at school. And, <laughs> I don't know if it was for you, but I used to basically have a full-blown costume change. Oh, really? Yeah. No, not for you. I didn't have the costume change, but it was definitely, it was like the accent, the stories, the jokes. I'm definitely funnier in Albanian. You just really? say like, yeah, it's just, you know, and sometimes like when I'm around my family, I think in Albanian and then I go out and I'm mm. like talking to my friends in English and then everything's in English. It's, it's a very weird yeah. thing, you know, going yeah. from one thing to the other, but. I kind of see it as a gift and a curse. Mm. You know, when I was growing up, I used to find it very confusing. And then when I became an adult, I realized it was very enriching. Definitely. And now I'm, you know, in my late 30s, getting to be an old man, I'm realizing actually, yes, it gave me the ability to switch in and out of different versions of myself. It gave me a, a kind of a, a visa to everywhere, but a passport to kind of nowhere. Now what I'm trying to do is get out of the code switching, thinking more about who am I when no one's watching? Because I don't know if you feel this way, which is part of your brain, if you grow up switching between different versions of yourself, part of your brain, whenever you enter a room, is taking the temperature of that room. And on some subconscious level, you, you become X version of yourself as opposed to Y version of yourself or Z version of yourself. Mm. And something that I'm trying to explore more and more is who am I when no one's watching? You yeah. Know? And so, yeah, I ebb and flow between seeing it as this superpower and this gift and this confusion and this curse. Yeah, I mean, we, like I said, I had a costume change, man. So at home we'd wear, you know, shalwar kameez, be speaking in Urdu, it's a traditional Muslim household. Then I was bused to a private school an hour and a half away from where I grew up that was predominantly white, very middle class. We wear school uniform. And just to show you how deep it is, like, you know, you have Gryffindor or Slytherin, you have the different houses, right? This was yeah. a private school that had the different houses. And the house that I was a member of, the house that I was representing, 
was named after the guy who colonized India. So I am there literally representing my colonial masters (laughs) in this nice costume. It's just, you know, you couldn't make it up. And then, of course, when they start to play rugby or do a lesson that I'm bored at, I'm bunking off school and I'm going to hang out with my boys. And that's a third different costume change. That's the green and white Reebok classics because that's the Pakistan flag. The fake Mm. Versace because I couldn't afford the real thing. Um, (laughs) Wembley Market, shout out. And um, and hanging out with my boys and speaking a different kind of mix between, you know, London slang, Jamaican slang, Urdu swear words mainly. And so there was this costume change, this character change, this personality shift, this code switching. And in a way, I realized now that's how I started acting. Mm. Well, it makes complete sense. You know, all these shifts, these changes, like you said, measuring the temperature of every room, you kind of create a character every time you go in. It's making me think a lot about the who am I in in the silence because I think so often you know when you're constantly on the move when you're constantly at least in my experience I was like the new girl in so many aspects I lived in Kosovo moved to London back and forth I was constantly the new girl so I was like figuring myself out so it's interesting that also with my career and everything that's you Hmm. know that's going on you also create like another kind of Although I always say that I've never created a persona and what you see on stage is kind of who I am at home the same way, but just like stronger. It's Mm. just, it's really interesting because now it's just made me think a lot of who am I when it's just me in the silence. Yeah, Um, join my club. We'll work it out. We're all trying to work it out. But I wanted to ask you, like, do you feel like when you're performing, you are most yourself? I do. I feel like it's a part of me that just like I can be my most expressive, but then at the same time, like when I get up and like I'm talking in between songs or having my moment, I then revert to just not this like, I don't, I, it's it's so weird to even explain because like when I'm singing, when I'm performing, I'm like loud, I'm really confident, I'm strong, whatever. When I yeah, start so talking in front of people, it's all very vulnerable and I'm like, I can't believe this is happening to me. So it almost mm. just like I have both sides of me that you see during one show. It's like the two parts of me and I do just go back and forth. And so, yeah, I, lots of lots of food for thought. But you've described yourself as a hyperactive child, maybe a little bit disruptive, but you excelled at school because you won a scholarship to a private school before going on to Oxford. You studied philosophy, politics, economics, and in your spare time, you also honed in your like MC skills as Riz MC. So again, that kind of dual identity followed you. You've spoken about your experience at Oxford being quite an isolating experience. And I wondered if you could talk about why that was for you and what have you taken from that period in your life? Yeah. Um, Before I say that, I just want to say that I think part of the reason why people connect to you so much to her is because you are unafraid to show those different sides of yourself. And I think that we all have those different sides to ourselves. And so actually showing the vulnerability as well as showing the power, that's who we are as human beings. That's the reality of it. The reality is we are all complicated. We're all these different versions, but some of us have no choice but to show it because <laughs> mm. you know the different sides are so extremely different or culturally different or whatever so i know i'd say respect to you for embracing that and and showing those different all those different colors of your rainbow with regards to like how it was for me at, at oxford and and also at the school i went to 
yeah, in some ways it was isolating and it was confusing. I look back on it now and I think that it was, uh, it taught me a lot, mm. you know. It taught me about how to be okay with myself, even if no one else was okay with me being in the room. You know, you shapeshift, you're a bit of a chameleon, you're trying to blend in everywhere, but some places are so different to your point of origin or some places you stick out so much, you actually can't shapeshift. And that was the beginning of me realizing, all right, actually there's limits to this. Like, why am I being all these different people to please people and to be accepted? I need to accept myself. I'll tell you a story. My first day at Oxford, you know, my dad drops me off on his you know, old banger of a car and I turn up and I feel like I haven't got the fancy dress memo that everyone else has got because people are wearing bow ties and bowler hats. Mm. And uh, I'm just confused. I'm really just going, right, right, dad, like, go. Yeah, people would, you know, they wear coattails and the whole right, right, summer right. dress. It was a whole situation. A whole look, I don't want, look, okay. There's normal, I don't want to put people off and say there's all kinds of different people at Oxford or Cambridge or any of these kind of posher institutions, but... There was also that side of it and, yeah, and of you know, so I wasn't used to it. I forgot my phone charger at home. So <laughs> I'm like, oh man, how, what do I do now? So I now have to go and speak to someone. So I go and knock on my neighbor's door and this young woman opens the door and I instantly just thought, you know, let me do that thing that I do. Let me code switch a bit. And I spoke in my poshest possible accent and I said, I'm um, sorry to disturb you. I was wondering if you had a Nokia phone charger. For, for all the younger listeners, Nokia was a phone company, yeah, back in the 90s. Um, they're like, what's Nokia? Googling yeah. it. Um, and I was like, I've forgotten my charger at home. Could I, by any chance, please borrow yours? And she just looked at me up and down and she just burst out laughing and she goes... Oh my God, you remind me so much of Ali G. It's unbelievable. No. And that's when I realized like this happened. And I just thought, all right, this is going to be a roller coaster. Let's do this. And, um, oh and that's when I realized God. that actually there's a limit to how much you can shape shift to people, please, to fit in. That was, it had gotten me to that point in life, but that was a turning point for me where I was like, mm, actually, nah, I'm going to embrace not fitting in, you know, Code switching like this has taught me acting. It's gotten me into an institution like Oxford, but actually that's a turning point. And I remember that's when I really started kind of running trouble and bass and hip hop nights there and trying to fly the flag for other people who didn't fit in and, you know, create a community around that. And um, yeah, it was, it, it was a realization. That's really interesting because I, you know, the whole concept of fitting in and, and, or even not fitting in and being okay with that is also such a massive step in, confidence and understanding and embracing that uniqueness because that evidently is the thing that makes you who you are you know it's the thing that makes you yeah. you know set apart from the rest and you know you've talked about your career as an actor seemingly being an unlikely thing you know even to you and yeah I think that was specifically because you didn't see examples for roles for people who look like you mm. but you did get your break quite quickly um, you took a lead in Michael Winterbottom's Road to Guantanamo in 2006, and it doesn't seem like you stopped or have been out of work since. And from the outside, I guess it looks like you exercised a lot of creative control and autonomy in your career. And is that how it's felt from the inside? No. 
<laughs> Let's <laughs> be honest, short, right? What does it, it look like? Listen, someone's on stage, they come to your show. They come to your show. They see you. You're being a powerhouse. You're being vulnerable. You've got the costume changes. You've got the choreographies. Bang. It's like, wow. They don't know what happened backstage. They don't know about you just stopping and just crying in the middle of a song maybe because it's just, I'm so true. tired or I messed that it's up true. or, you know, having the stomach. But, you know, from the outside, it always looks like that. And I think in a way that's what's so funny about social media. You're catching everyone on their fake best day. Yeah. And the reality is... <laughs> there's no, I don't ever there's go no bad on social, days, no crying. I don't ever go on social media and feel better about myself. I don't know about you, but I'm just always going, man, I'm behind. I'm missing. I'm, I'm the loser here. <laughs> and um, the reality is it's been a roller coaster and it continues to be a roller coaster. And in a way, I continue to relearn this lesson, which is on the one hand, embracing my kind of unclear sense of identity that allows me to go to different places and be other people. And on the other hand, trying to really answer that question of who am I and what am I here to do? So if I give you an example, I mean, I mean, jumping ahead like this, you know, we won an Oscar for this short film, right? We called it a short film. It was a music video for my last album. It's called The Long Goodbye if people want to check it out. Just a warning, it's quite hard hitting. But that is an example of me and the director, Anil, not trying to people please. Dancing literally like no one is watching. You know when you dance like no one is watching, that's the best dancing. Yeah. Doesn't matter if you look like you're a crazy person. You're not self-conscious. Yeah. And that is the thing that cut through. That is the thing that we ended Resonated. up winning an Oscar for. So yeah. it's been a roller coaster for me emotionally on the one hand thinking, what do people want me to be? I can do that. I can be that. You know, I feel proud in a way that I've had to develop a wide range in what I can do as an actor. But more and more I'm thinking, now nah, who am I? Because honestly, the reason I became an artist on some level is because I wanted to stretch culture. I'm sure it's the same with you. I'm sure that's the same with every artist, actually. Some of us have just really got skin in the game. We want culture to stretch big enough that it embraces our families and our experiences and the places we're from. Absolutely. And so now I'm thinking the way to stretch culture isn't like being... Uh, all things to all people and trying to fit into as many different films and different boxes as possible. The way to stretch culture is to offer it something that doesn't exist in culture Absolutely. yet. And that's that's ourselves, you know, that's our own stories. So that's the kind of direction we've taken. But now there's been a lot of like periods of just not, they just not being work. And there's been a lot of occasions of relearning that lesson that it's going to be harder for you, you know, as a person of color. People are going to think of you in a certain way. People are going to try and define you. How do you push back against that? Now, I want to tell you a quick story about this first film you mentioned, The Road to Guantanamo. Yeah. I'm a drama school. I'm already thinking I'm not going to have any career. Yeah. There's like not really many people like me out there. The war on terror is happening. Guantanamo Bay is open. I feel passionately about it. Randomly a casting director gets in touch says they're making this film. It just so happens... That day, we were doing headshots. You know, when you're an actor, you take mm -hmm. a photograph of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what you give to casting directors. I decided to get a haircut. I was broke. I went to a shit hairdresser's. I got an awful bowl cut. And I took that headshot and I was like, my career is done before it's even started. Oh, it no. just so happened 
that me in that bowl cut meant I looked exactly like a real-life Guantanamo Bay detainee that they were making a, f- a film about his life. Wow. So it was perfect. So shout out that barber's on Finchley Road, man. Forgotten the name. You sorted me out. So anyway, I got this uh, role. We went and did it. We went to Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran. And, you know, it meant that our passports had all these country stamps on them. We went to Berlin Film Festival. We won an award. It was a story, true story about these British citizens who were tortured in Guantanamo Bay by American forces illegally. We came back to Luton Airport. British security services, MI5, stopped us. And they dragged us into an unmarked room. They started basically roughing us up. And this uh, MI5 officer put me in an arm lock, started twisting my arm grabbing my phone out my hand, they're jabbing their fingers in my face and they go, did you become an actor to further the Muslim struggle, yeah? What do you think of the Iraq war? So intense. And um, up until that point, I hadn't thought about why I'd become an actor. Uh, I was pretty sure I just did it because we used to do the school play with the girls' school. So I thought it, you know, makes sense. Um, (laughs) But I was actually kind of thinking like, why did I become an actor? It wasn't to further Muslim struggle. And that's why I clarified in my mind, it's like, It was to try and stretch culture, try and create space for people like us when we're not stereotyped. And the funny thing is, because I had that experience, I released my first rap song, the post 9-11 blues, which is like a joke rap song. Please don't check it out on YouTube, actually. If you're (laughs) listening, you're banned from watching that. I'm taking that off tonight. Hey guys, so I'm just quickly jumping in on the edit. Riz actually didn't take this off the internet, so I thought I'd just play you a clip. Post 9-11, I've been getting paid. Playing terrorists on telly, getting songs made. But will it get airplay, Giza? If BBC don't want it, I'll send it to Al Jazeera. Yeah. Everybody do the post 9-11 dance. Dossier, shake your ass, run the boats, go blast. Everybody shake your post 9-11 dance. So the dossier was wrong. Jackson Boyle, come along, sing a song, sing along. Push your mare in the tree. K-I-L-L-I. Yes, made it for 300 quid. And, and I released this rap song and then that got banned. And because of that, it made a lot of noise. And then I got Four Lions and then I got Shifty and then I got mm-hmm. Brits. And I got, so it was this crazy thing where like leaning into the adversity actually really opened a lot of doors for me. And that was just a big lesson I kept learning and relearning. We'll be right back after this short break. I actually, I want to talk to you because you mentioned the long goodbye. And, you know, in 2020, the long goodbye, that was your album. And you've described that as your breakup letter to Great Britain. And it's, um, it's this brilliantly executed mashup of hip hop classic Indian literature, spoken word, and Kuali samples. Thank you. And you said at the time of the release that you only want to make music when I've got something to get off my chest or when there's something that needs to be said that isn't said. What was it that you wanted to say with this album that you couldn't do with any other medium? You know, I'll answer your question, but I do want to ask you, is it the same for you? Do you feel like music is your kind of therapy in a way? It's how you... A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Music for me is, is, is the only way I feel like I can put my thoughts. Like when I put my thoughts onto paper and I 
sing it enough, but also, first of all, to like get things off my chest that I feel like I can't say them in any other way. Music mm. is, it, you know, it definitely comes hand in hand with me for that. But there are also so many times where I write things that make me feel better about the situation I'm in, where I almost feel like I'm rewriting some kind of story to work more in my favor that the amount of times that I sing it or say it, I'm almost manifesting it into my life. Wow. It can be in that way as well. Mm, yeah. I was um, listening to some interview um, with Kendrick Lamar where he said that it's like he wrote these songs because, you know, onto Pimp a Butterfly where he was talking about depression and he's talking himself out of depression. Songs like I... You know, I love myself mm. because he knew he was playing a trick on himself. He knew that he gets down. So many creatives suffer from depression. I have um, so many people, whatever they do. And he got up on stage and now he has to sing, I love myself. Yeah. Again and again and again <laughs> and again on stage around the world. So I love that. It's like, it's how you're feeling, but it's also how you want to feel. Yeah, I love exactly. that. Exactly. I love that um, actually. I I I um I don't know that, but it, it it makes so much sense. It's like the more you tell yourself something, the more you kind of repeat it. Yeah. Um, you're bound to start believing it in some way. Yeah, it becomes like a mantra or affirmation. Mm. I mean, for me, the long goodbye is everything you're saying. It was an album that isn't even me breaking up with Britain. It's me waking up one day and feeling like I've been dumped by Britain. Which I think a lot of people did, you know, after Brexit and with Donald Trump coming into office and so much kind of rising intolerance. I found myself in this, at this dinner, there were people from all different backgrounds there, like Jewish, East Asian, Muslim, Black. And we were sitting around and it was, the conversation was kind of shocking, but it wasn't surprising. It was everyone was casually saying, where's the escape plan? When America or the UK, the quote-unquote West, becomes so intolerant that it's not safe for our families to be here. You know, where are we going to go? Will our grandchildren be the generation that curse us for not getting out while we could? It was so weird because I'd realized everyone had been having these thoughts, but we're just talking about it casually. That's such a crazy thing to say if you think about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that is when the seed took root from this album. And um, it kind of builds off of some of what I was exploring with my group, the Sweatshop Boys. But this was a solo album because it was a lot more personal for me. And it was just about that personal feeling of waking up and being dumped. And so the whole album is a kind of story, a breakup album with Britney, Britannia, you know? Um, and she's changing the locks. She only calls me when she needs me in the middle of a pandemic when someone's got to drive the Ubers or in World War One when she needs soldiers or when the NHS needs staffing or she needs some food or she needs a nice jewel to put in a crown. But she's just, I just feel heartbroken. And so this whole album is, is that breakup album and there's the story of it and friends are leaving me voice notes and stuff. And it was honestly very therapeutic in part because, you know, you get to change the ending. Mm you know, to the real life story. So this ending was one where it's like, oh, you know what? Sorry, I don't need you to love me for me to love myself. I don't need you to tell me I belong for me to belong here. So that's kind of what it was. It was a way of me just working through all these crazy feelings of anger and heartbreak and depression and 
then coming out the other side, like, actually, no, I'm good. You can say what you want. I ain't going anywhere. I mean, you're definitely not going anywhere. You know, you went on, you made a short film with the same name or a music video, like you said, and it won Best Live Action Short Film at the Oscars. And I was so fucking delighted for you it was it was amazing and it was so well deserved and um for anyone who's listening if you haven't seen it yet you have to go and check it out i mean it's a short film it's 11 minutes but it contains three massive shifts in tone you know the first act has kind of a mundane intimacy where you're like dropped immediately into the life of this south asian family and like the suburbs of england and without giving any spoilers, I hope, in act two, you know, we witness the horror and the devastation of what the, like, logical conclusion of the rise of the far right must be to minority communities. And then finally, in act three, you deliver this insanely powerful soliloquy direct to camera. And for me, it was like a fucking punch to the gut. Kidnapped by empire and diaspora fosterness. Raised by Bangra Garage and Halal Southern Fried Chicken Shops, the jungle is the jungly. I'm Mowgli from the Jungle Book. I'm John Barnes in the box. I blaze hard off the mosque. I bend words like Brown and West until they just fell. What? Alongside that, your speech at the Oscars was really moving. Um, you know, in such divided times, we believe that the role of story is to remind us that there is no us and them, there's just us. And this, this is for everyone who feels like they don't belong, anyone who feels like they're stuck in a no-man's land. You're not alone. We'll meet you there. That's where the future is. Peace. Did you plan to say that in advance, or was that something that you came up with on the spot? And what was the significance of this award for you? This is another one of those examples of from the outside, it looks so cool. But (laughs) (laughs) let me tell you the the true story of the Oscars. I'd love the true story. So... We're late. We're late to the Oscars. You know, there's a lot of stuff to sort out. So we turn up late, but just late. And they've closed the doors. They started giving out the awards. And they don't just let you walk in at random because, you know, they're filming. And so I'm stuck outside with my wife, with Anil, the director, with his wife, with just a bunch of people, like the producer of James Bond. We're all just stuck outside and we're like, come on, man, you can't let us in. Security's like, sir, I cannot let you in. I cannot. And we're just like, bro, come on, man. (laughs) We're going to miss our award. Let me in, dude. You know, we're trying to like just grab at the door. He's like, sir, sir, do not do. Luckily, just before our award, they go, ah, they're opening it for 15 seconds, the doors. They open the doors, we run in, we run in, we're like, quickly go hustled away to a seat excuse me excuse me sorry excuse me sorry go and sit down and they go and the award goes to the long goodbye we're like oh my god this is jokes (laughs) i'm not even kidding you can ask my wife we sat down for about 10 seconds we stood up and we just go and we just walk and we had just discussed in the car Anil was like i'll do the thank yous you say some stuff i was like maybe you know yeah, we'll riff on this, these kind of themes. And I went up there and I didn't riff on those themes. I just literally said the like subject heading of the two areas I'm supposed to talk about. Wow. But it kind of worked. It was a good lesson and sometimes say less, man. So we just went up there, said something. We just pulled out like, you know, five minutes before in a car and just 
and just popped off. But sometimes it's good like that, right? When you don't get a chance to overthink things. I just, I loved it. Oh, thank you, Dua. I really loved it. I appreciate Um, it. The thing I'm just gassed about is that we won an Oscar for a music video. It just like sly. Insane. So sly. Yeah. You're like, yeah, 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 it's a short (laughs) film, it's a short film. It's like, yeah. (laughs) Sneaky. I have two questions about this music video then. First, I want to know how long have you been percolating this story? And secondly, is there any particular significance, you know, winning an, an Oscar for a film like this? It's weird, isn't it, when you ask, like, where do ideas come from? Because... I know, sometimes the muse just comes and drops them off and you're like, here it is. Yeah, well, you just That's steal them thinking. from more talented people on your team. That's what I like <laughs> to do personally. And, you know, the director, Neil Kari, is a genius, but it was something interesting about how we met. We were introduced by a friend, Jan Demange, who's a director who started Top Boy and he's an awesome director. And he just said, you two should meet. And it's something he does a lot for, for a lot of artists. And we connected and I had just finished like a, a press tour, a shoot or something where I was feeling like, I got to do something for me, you know? And he was feeling the same way. So we just started talking. I was like, this is where my head's at. I've just recorded this album. He was like, this is where my head's at. And we just would meet up for a cup of tea every week or so and just go, let's just make something. Let's not overthink it. Let's try and make it as quickly as possible with as little planning as possible and just assume no one's going to watch it and just do what we want. And I can't tell you the freedom that created. It's Mm. just that great irony when you, like I said, you dance like no one's watching. We do your own therapy the thing that you think no one will relate to this, this is too much about my heart and my dreams and my nightmares. That's the thing that cut through. So we just, it came out of this friendship and this mostly little get a cup of tea, have a therapy session about, oh man, this is where my head's at. Yeah, I feel the same. And we just egged each other on. And when we came up with the idea, we thought, all right, we've come up with this, but no one's going to let us make it. We submitted it to WeTransfer for funding. And they were like, yeah, cool, go ahead. And then we were like, wow. oh, shit, now we've got to make this. Um, <laughs> and, um, and it's really down to the genius of Anil that he takes you on this crazy roller coaster. It's got, you know, like I said, it's almost like a family comedy. Then it goes to like a rap musical horror. And then it ends up in a kind of spoken word poetry thing. And it's really down to his talent and skill. It came out of a place of honesty and friendship and not really giving a fuck, to be honest. And it's so weird that that's always the stuff that lands. The stuff where you sit down and go, all right, I want to make something for everyone. I want to make something that's going to connect. That never connects. No, that's true. Do you find that yourself? Is there a song that's super personal to you that you wrote just for yourself and you hear other people singing it back and you're like, wow. I mean, so often, every time that you put a song out or an album, I never know how people are going to react. I never know if this is good enough. I never know how to feel about something. Or there can be moments where like, while I'm making it, I'm like, yeah, this feels good. This is like something that I feel like really represents me. And then when it gets to the point of like putting something out, I'm like, fuck, I have no idea if this is what people want or if this is what they want to hear from me or if anyone's going to even like it. So then you start getting into this whole kind of like judgmental thing about yourself of like, I'm just not good Mm. enough. This isn't going to be great. And then it actually ends up being the thing that people do connect with. It's, it's, Mm. um, it's always the the things that surprise you the most. So it's when you're vulnerable, 
Yeah. It's when you're vulnerable. Can, exactly. Can I just talk about that self judgment thing for a second? Mm, of course. So I feel like everyone at every level has an imposter syndrome. Massively. I mean, I don't know about everyone. But I'm, yeah, I'm, some I'm people just like, are, some I'm people agreeing are with what you're saying because I, well, I feel that. It's so, so common that, you know, you meet these people at the top of their game and top of their field and they have that critical inner voice. And even that, I would say, is a gift and a curse. You know, it's good. It keeps you on your toes. If you feel like you own the joint, that's when you start really slipping. Yeah. So you need that kind of like, all right, I've got to prove myself. I've got to prove myself. But it's also kind of crazy to me, just to let you, just to be really honest, we won an Oscar. People are going, you must be buzzing. How do you feel? I feel like what's next? Yeah. Isn't that insane? Yeah. Isn't that insane. sad in a way? And, and that is I, how so many of us are built. I mm. feel like, yeah, okay. All right. Yeah, cool. Now, don't get me wrong, I had moments of joy, I had moments of feeling so grateful, but those are moments, man. It's so interesting because I think if your brain is wired to kind of strive constantly, then it's not very well built to like savor things. And that's something I'm trying to shift is actually pause and sit with things and go, ah, all right, you know. Yeah, this is great. Um, I can chill now. There's something about that. Like for me, for example, I can't help at any given point, even like, you know, when things are great, like you're saying, you know, you have these like incredible moments and you want to celebrate them. But for me in my head, I'm like, I feel like the rug could be pulled from under my feet at any given moment. Mm. Like if I don't like work hard enough or if I'm not doing all these things that I want to do, then then I like I'm going to be forgotten or something like that's going to happen, mm. you know? And so I'm always like, okay, what's next? And what do I have to do? And what's this? And it's interesting because I'm like, I love my job and I get to do all these amazing things. But then also because you want to do everything, because you're constantly looking at what's next and you feel like you're strapped to a rocket and you just have no idea where it's going or how, how, how it's taking off or how you're supposed to enjoy and be present in the moment. It's, I mean... It can get really interesting, but I, do you think that's got something to do with like, I don't know, coming from like an immigrant household, you know? I was going to say exactly that. I was going to wait like for you to finish and said I said, to me, immigrant was like, work oh, you ethic. Have an, yeah, immigrant work ethic. That's what someone said to me because you have an immigrant yeah. work ethic. And I take a lot of pride in that because I feel proud, you know, to say that I work really hard and that's kind of like where it comes from. But then that's also like a blessing and a curse, isn't it? There's lots yeah. of... Lots of blessings and curses that come hand in They're hand. They're always the same. Yeah. They are always the same thing. That's what I'm realizing. The place that I realized that most like clearly was, I did this film called Sound of Metal. Love that film. Oh, thank you, man. Appreciate you. I had to learn to play the drums. I don't play the drums. Like it was eight, eight months every day. It's crazy. It was just like, I'm never going to get this right. It was so intense. I also had to learn sign language. Obviously, I don't speak sign language. Like, sadly, most hearing people don't, like me. And um, that was the curse. I was convinced that's the curse. I was like, if I can just get the stupid drumming and this sign language I'm so bad at out of the way that I can act in this role, of course, that turns out to be the gift because I'm suddenly moving in a more physical way, expressing myself in a more embodied and physical way than I mm -hmm. ever have, not just on screen, but on my life. 
you know, the deaf community have this saying that hearing people are emotionally repressed because we hide behind words. When you communicate with your whole body, with your hands, you are so much more emotionally connected to what you're saying. And so that, that curse became that gift, you know? And anyway, that was just a moment for me of like, all right, this is the 50th time I'm learning this lesson. I am going to remember this. Of course you never do, but I just want to touch again, man, on what you're saying because you're making me feel a little less alone and a bit less like I'm crazy. I feel the same way. This has been very giving, you know, in so many ways, just yeah. talking to you. It's been wonderful. Yeah, it was interesting. I was like, you know, speaking to people and they're like, oh, you must be still buzzing. You must be this, that and the other. And here's how I've kind of squared it off now. The real gift of that Oscar is realizing that actually nothing changes after something like that. Nothing really changes after a Grammy. Now, don't get me wrong. You might get some work opportunities. You feel some encouragement. But I'm still back home cleaning out the bins. <laughs> I'm going to celebrate with my family. That's amazing. But guess what? My family dynamics are the same. We're still going to be bickering over like yep. who, gets, who gets to hold the TV remote. That's not changing. <laughs> like every, you know what I mean? Like your life is yeah. your life. Your brain is your brain. The real change comes from inside and it takes time. And these things that come from outside the best you can hope is that they trigger some change inside. So I, look, I have this joke now with my wife. I look at Oscar and I look at him and I go, so? And he looks back at me and he goes, I'm, I, I really can't help you. He's like, I got, I got nothing for you, man. Like maybe you misread the instructions of what I'm supposed to be doing here. I'm, I've only been working here a week. I got no idea. And it's true. It's like this little dude, is actually, he can't really help me, man. And that's been the gift of it is like this guy going, don't chase me. Yeah. I got nothing for you. And, and I say that with a pinch of salt because the, the other gift of it is the other thing we we're talking about is actually it's the stuff that's most honest, most personal and the stuff that you think you're just making for you. There's the stuff that connects with people. That's the thing, you know. We'll be right back after this short break. I want to turn a little bit to um, to your activist journey. This is something that I'm always really interested in exploring because I think that we can learn a lot from people like you who've intertwined their activism with their career and life choices. To give some context to our listeners, in 2016, you wrote an essay for the book, The Good Immigrant, where you compared the audition room to airport security. And you said, in both places, you are a type whose face says things before your mouth opens. You're a signifier before you are a person. Can you tell the listeners about the themes that you explored in this essay and why you wanted to tell this story? Well, I wrote this essay because I said I would and then I instantly regretted it because my mate Nikesh Shukla was putting together this collection of essays. But in truth, I wrote it because, same reason you write those songs, because trying to work out something for yourself. and. Um, yeah, I guess it was about trying to navigate stereotypes both on the screen and in real life. And, you know, something kind of hit me when, you know, whenever I'd fly to the US, that's changed now, but I would always get pulled aside for three and a half hours for questioning and secondary and third searches and security checks. And, and I'd look around in that room and it'd be surrounded by other brown dudes between the age of 18 and 50 that looked more or less like me. More facial hair, less facial hair, whatever. 
And one day I realized this feels a lot like being in the audition waiting room as an actor. Mm. You're looking for a South Asian male, <laughs> 20 to 40. And you come in and sit down and surrounded by all these dudes who look like you. And you're kind of in it together, but you're also kind of not. And no one wants to be there. And everyone wants to put in a good performance. So they graduate to the next stage. And it just kind of made me realize that, you know, the connection between stereotypes that are on screen and in life. And I guess I've been on this journey where I've been trying to work out if I can shift stereotypes in culture and on screen, then maybe you can create a bit more breathing space in life for those of us who are sometimes trapped in them. That's really what I was trying to kind of work through, you know. That and a couple of like hilarious experiences when I have been at airports where, I don't know if you've ever had this, have you ever been like stopped and searched by a fan? Stopped and searched by a fan? No, I don't think, I don't think that's happened to me. I, for, for a long time, I would get stopped at Heathrow Airport before boarding the flight by some dude that'd be rapping my lyrics back at me while he's swabbing me for explosives. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he'd be like, oh, do you know of anyone who wants harm to the United States? Oh, yeah, bro, can I get a selfie? It'd just be such a, like, head fuck. Oh, my God. And um, I thought, like, there was something there that I needed to unpack and make sense right. of. And, and that's what that essay kind of explores, you know, the, the different things people project on you. Yes. Yeah. so interesting. In 2021, you took your activism on representation within the film industry to another level. And you did something that I, I found really so brilliant and so original and really inspiring. And you partnered with the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative, which is an academic center with a solid reputation on research into representation and inclusion to publish a major report on Muslim representation in film. It was very uncomfortable reading it, and you said at the time when the report was published that the representation of Muslims on screen feeds the policies that get enacted, the people that get killed, the countries that get invaded. This study shows us the scale of the problem in popular film and its cost is measured in lost potential and lost lives. Can you explain exactly what you meant by that? Yeah, so, you know, you have a hunch sometimes. You have a gut feeling that, I don't think I'm imagining this, but every time I see people like me or my family on screen, they're like the bad guys or they're like stupid or they're like evil or, you know. Mm. And um, there'd been some work that had been done in this field before and the USC Annenberg Initiative had done some work into representation of women on screen or um, African-Americans. And I said, we need to do one into Muslims. And what the research found is that I think Muslims are like 1.6% of all speaking roles in like Australia, New Zealand, UK and US films, the top grossing films. And let's not forget they're about 25% of the world's population. So if we're serving a global audience, what does that mean? Now, of that tiny percentage where you actually have Muslims on screen, I think two thirds of the time, they're either victims of or perpetrators of violence. I think this has an impact, you know. Mm, um, absolutely. There's research that also shows that, yeah, it does change people's views. It creates the space for people to stop trying to relate to you, to stop thinking of you as human and complicated and empathizing with you. And when that happens, that's when, you know, 
crazy policies get enacted and hate crime starts to rise and it's just a continuation of uh, I guess what I was talking about like if we can change some stuff on screen change some stuff on culture maybe you know we can change things in the real world because I believe culture is a mirror when you get up on the stage you know you're singing those lyrics people are seeing and hearing their own experience if we change what's in the mirror maybe we can change what's going on in the world you know, maybe the mirror works two ways. And so we launched this study. We had, you know, a lot of coverage and started a lot of conversation. And we said, we're not just going to talk about the problem. We want to talk about the solution. And what we did is we created a scholarship, basically, for 10 Muslim filmmakers every kind of year, year and a half. We pick 10 of the best. They're up and coming filmmakers. We give them $25,000. And we also connect them with mentors. So we got people like Hassan Minaj, Mahershala Ali, myself and Bishar Ali, who just wrote Miss Marvel, which I can't wait to see, by the way. And just bring this new kind of generation of talent through and create that support, financial support and also kind of creative guidance. And um, I'm not going to lie, it's been a mission putting it all together, but I it's bet. been amazing. It's been really, I bet, really inspiring. Very rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's just so much amazing talent out there. And ultimately, on some level, you kind of, you know, it's like, what do you leave behind, man? Like, yeah, there's your work, but it's the lives you touch, it's the doors you open. So, yeah, this is something we're really proud of. Uh, you know, we did it with Pillars Fund, who are a charity, and we did it with my production company, Left Handed Films. And it's, yeah, we just can't wait for the world to meet these filmmakers. They're amazing. Yeah, that's that's so amazing. And it's such it's such great work and such important work as well. And and there's definitely a, a welcome tendency to introspection within the creative industry right now. But the reality is that your success as a Muslim man remains the exception to the rule within the industry. Like mm. what kind of response have you had since the report was published? And like, do you feel like there are any signs of a positive shift? I think there's the desire for the industry to change. I know it's weird, man. Like sometimes you pick up the newspaper, you turn on the TV and it feels like things are accelerating in opposite directions at the same time. You know, it's like things are more intolerant and more crazy and more racist than ever. Things are also more progressive or more open and more woke than ever. And it's, yeah. um, it's hard to gauge, you know, sometimes where we're at, but... Uh, we've certainly seen like, you know, Amazon Studios has come on to give us money and support. Netflix has come on to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got a lot of different creative partners in the industry, but it was born out of that. It's exactly what you said. It's like the exceptions don't change the rule. The rules are changed by us all kind of getting together. Getting together. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure so many of our listeners are so inspired by the choices that you've made with the films that you've starred in, the films that you produce, the scripts that you write and your efforts to shift the industry as well. But none of this is without a great deal of personal risk. And what I would love to know is who have been your role models, you know, when navigating these very personal and bold choices in your life. i got to say my, on some level, my parents, my family. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong, like sometimes... My family or my parents are like, listen, stop being so political. Why are you speaking out about this thing? That thing is very common for first generation yeah. immigrants. Like keep your head down, respect, you know. <laughs> it's like 
you know, it's that thing when you, when you raise kids, apparently it's, it's like kids won't do what you tell them to. They'll do what you do. And like it or not, I have seen my parents my whole life standing up for other people, looking out for other mm. people, taking care of other people. So I've done that. Now they, they, you know, now to like, some extent. You, you and now like, what are you doing? Take care of yourself. <laughs> Why are you doing that? You're wasting yeah. your time. You know, nah, um, only sometimes. But um, so that's part of it. Um, I mean, a hero of mine was most deaf. I'd say is most deaf. Amazing. You know, the rapper and actor. Yeah. Just an amazing talent. He's a hilarious guy as well. I actually, I've never really met him properly, but I've stalked him on three different occasions with three very different outcomes over the years. <laughs> stalked so, him how so? Like at a okay. party, you've just like nah, followed him around? Or this, like... is my, this is my story of the, the three stories of most deaf, right? First time I go to see him at a play in London. I buy a copy of the script. I go wait for him outside the stage door, hoping that he's going to sign it. I'm like 19 years old. He comes out and I'm like, oh, most definitely, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an actor and a rapper as well. I'm such a big fan of yours. Can you sign this for me? And I'm just so gassed he's going to sign this. I'm going to show it to my friends. We all worship him. It's going to be, oh my God. He's like, oh, you know, word, what's your name? What's your name? Okay, word, where you from? Okay. He's like writing in the book. I'm like, yes, he's writing me a sick message. He, he goes, I pull it out, show it to my friend. I go, oh, hey, most deaf son, my script. Show it to him. And he hasn't written my name. He hasn't written his name. He's just written Brooklyn 1. I'm like, what am I going to do with that, man? With that, yeah. No one's going like... to believe me. <laughs> no one's going to believe that's most deaf. It's... So I was gutted. Second time I met most deaf must have been like, oh my God, like, Four or five years later, I'm supporting Most Deaf and Dizzy Rascal, the Warehouse Project in Manchester. Wow. I have to say, I smashed it that day. I felt so good. I came off stage, I just dropped a new EP. It was very ravey. And uh, I come off stage and I'm waiting. I see Most Deaf play. I'm like, it's crazy. I can't believe I'm seeing him so close up. He's my hero. He comes off stage. I go up to him. I'm like, yo, Most Islamicum. He's like, Alaikum salam. He's walking off. I just go to about to chat to him. He just gets mobbed by fans, women, whatever. He just ducks off. And I go into my pocket to give him a CD. I realize I left my CDs at home. So I'm like, what am I going to do? So his tour DJ comes backstage after him. And I just go, listen, I just bought and I saved up to buy an iPod. I go, listen, I want you to have this iPod. I goes, I've put it on my track. Just take oh. this. And you have to play it to him on a tour bus, on person, anything. I just, I don't even want anything. I just want him to hear this. And he's like, what, are you sure? I'm like, please do it. He takes it off me. I actually felt good about myself. I was like, yo, I committed to like forging some kind of musical connection with my hero. Um, flash forward three and a half hours later, everyone's clearing out the club. Everyone's leaving the tour bus, is leaving. I go, yo, did you give it to him? Tour DJ goes, what? Oh, nah. Hands it back to me, gets on the tour bus. I'm like, nah, man. Oh, Riz, that breaks my heart. I know, I know. <laughs> the third time I met him, he was DJing at uh, the Vogue BAFTA party that I was hosting. I suddenly okay. met him on a very different level. And I was just like, 
tried to play it cool this time and just like, hey, how you, you didn't doing? tell him about the other two times. Nah, of course not. It must be crazy. <laughs> I hope he never hears this. And uh, he was just like, hey, what's up? So I just made small talk and just popped away. It's like, all right. The story of my whole life and career through three meetings with most deaf. <laughs> who's, your, who's your role model? Who do you look up to creatively <sighs> or otherwise? Role models, I mean, I have to say the same, you know, my parents, if it wasn't for them, if it wasn't for watching them, you know, work so hard, do multiple jobs, but at the same time, make me feel like I wasn't missing out on anything while I was growing up. Like that for me, that's like at the top of, you know, all the role models. I have a funny story, a bit like yours, but with Katy Perry. I mean, very Mm. different, but I was like 15 years old. I go Hammersmith Apollo to go and watch Katy perform. I'm in the front row. I'm so excited. I'm like screaming. I'm like, oh my God, like it's the best day ever, best day of my life. All of a sudden she gets up and she's, she's, she asks people in the crowd who wants to get up on stage with me. Of course, I'm like jumping over the barrier. I'm so excited. Yes. One of her dancers takes my hand. I've jumped on stage. I am the most excited kid on the planet. There's like another five, six, seven kids on stage with me. And it it was just, I mean, I I couldn't believe it. I was so far away. And then she like took a group picture with everyone. And I just about managed just to put like my hand on her like glittery bodysuit or whatever. And then we were sent back into the crowd. But I was like, that was amazing. And then I then did like an, like Casey interviewed me for this V Magazine cover I did. And I had to like remind her about that time. And I, I, we even found pictures online. It's quite funny, but. I was um, just going to say, I need pictures, man. Internet. It's. It's quite fun. I'm going to find them. I'm going to send them to you. I'm going to find them. But it's wow. it's all very, it's all very funny. Fans love to like dig that up on Instagram and Twitter. Oh, that's amazing, man. What um, a journey, huh? So, yeah, that's definitely. But knowing you, now knowing you a little bit, you don't ever stop to take that in, do you? Or do you? Are <laughs> you getting better at, at that, it? I'm getting better at it. I'm getting better at it. Good, I'm, I'm trying glad. to at least. I mean, it's, you know, life is so hectic and, you know, we live that such a fast life, it seems constantly looking at something different and I mean even with you with like Sound of Metal you had probably so much on your plate learning the drums learning sign language your lines you know doing other things in your everyday life you know it becomes hard to kind of sit down with your thoughts and figure out who you are in the silence because there's always so much going on but yes I'm gonna take a leaf out of your book and and try and focus on that a little bit more love that for sure it's well um, deserved, man. Riz, thank you so much. I um I usually finish up all my my chats with asking one list of recommendations or or a list of recommendations. And I would love for our listeners for you to share your top five favorite movies of all time. Oh my god. Put me on the spot. <laughs> all right. I'm just gonna just off the top of my head, I'm gonna say Latin. Latin. It's uh, spelled H-A-I-N-E. Um, French film. Um, Just, there's nothing. It's just amazing. It still stands up. Such a cool, funny, entertaining, hard-hitting, political, badass film with swagger and just, yeah. But growing up on a a housing project in in Paris. I'm going to say Thin Red Line. Terrence Malick. A film about war and loneliness and it's just so beautiful amazing soundtrack on that as well i'm gonna say the godfather i like one more but two has got both pacino and de niro so you can't really ever beat that so i'm gonna say part two and um it's interesting man like you grow up watching a lot of 
I feel like watching Italian American stories and those films like that really linked me into it felt like I was seeing my experience on screen, you know, immigrant experience, outsider experience. And that's why I also have in my top five Goodfellas. Goodfellas is probably even number one. Um, If you haven't seen Goodfellas, just stop everything and do that now. That's four. The fifth one, I'm going to say, I'm going to be biased and say a film that I was lucky enough to be a producer on recently, which just made history. It's the first time a film was nominated Best Foreign Language and Best Documentary and Best Animation is a film called Flea. And I I can gas it up because I had nothing to do with really making it. I just produced it. And it is just a beautiful, incredible, moving story about a gay Afghan refugee who's sharing a story for the first time. It's a documentary, but it's all animated. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a really special film. And um, we didn't win any Oscars with that film on Sunday, but I think uh, that's a story that will live on and sadly becoming more and more relevant. Riz, thank you so, so much. Thank you for for everything. This has just been an absolute joy and a pleasure talking to you. I've loved every moment of this. So I just, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for all the support. I see you amplifying all these messages and Thank you for doing you, man. You know, you are stretching culture, what you're doing musically, what you're doing with your podcast, what you're doing with your newsletter, what you're doing just across the board. It's like, you know, using your voice, speaking out, it's really inspiring. And yeah, we will support you, man. man. Much love. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you again to Riz Ahmed for one of my favorite conversations yet. And thanks to all of you for listening to another episode of Dua Lipa at your service. It's been an incredibly fun and challenging series in all the best ways. And I'm so glad that you've been here with me for every step of it. On last week's powerful episode, my guest Nadia Murad gave us her recipe for Iraqi dolmas. And we asked you, our wonderful listeners, for dishes that evoked a sense of place or memory for you, or that are just really delicious. Here are some of the answers we received, which I've earmarked to cook the next time I'm near my kitchen. Hi there, Dua and everybody at Service 95. This is Lou from London. I loved your podcast last week with Nadia and Amal Clooney. It was really fascinating. And a food that evokes a wonderful memory for me is my dad's curry from when we used to live in India. He used to make a mince and coriander curry. And when I make it now, it always reminds me of him. Thanks very much. Bye. Hi, Dua. This is Aliyah from Brooklyn, New York. Um, A food that brings a really fond memory for me is what we call in Trinidad doubles, which is roti and chana. You can add other things to it. Sometimes you can add mango chutney to it. It reminds me of being Trinidadian, but also more deeper, my Indo roots, my Indo-Trinidadian roots and being part Indian. So it's something that I really, really greatly enjoy. And it's just something that makes me feel at home. Hey, Dua, this is Marina from Seattle, Washington. Just want to let you know that your Seattle concert rocked my socks off. Last episode, um, you asked about some 
recipes. My favorite is called gallo pinto. It's a Nicaraguan dish. Super easy to make. I know that you're probably like a health icon. However, if you're in the mood for something like crispy and savory and a little salty and just absolutely delicious, to be honest, you just boil some pinto beans, make some white rice Spanish style, put some onions in the pan with some oil, fry it all up, and it's absolutely delicious 10 out of 10 chef's kiss really cut some mustard thank you for your podcast and all that you do bye (laughs) oh i absolutely loved loved those voice notes all of that sounds delicious love the crispy food is definitely the way to my heart so i will definitely be writing all of these down and checking them out thank you guys so much that really made my day Please be sure to join us for next week's episode, the finale of series one, in which I'll be interviewing my most difficult guest yet, myself. Listen along as I revisit every episode thus far, discussing what I learned, what I loved, and what I'm most excited to tackle in series two. Yep, we're gonna do this all over again later in the year. But I'll see you next week for the final episode of this series. Bye.